behavior bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey, and we are here with episode 131. Casey, give it to us. All right, 131. So 131. I hate mushrooms, but I hear that they're a lot of fun. You do hate mushrooms, and if they're going to help hate you, them. hate them, hate them. Yes, not in the sense of uh, I just taste dirt. Yeah, I, I'm just not mushrooms, tomatoes, and onions. I'm out. Call me out for it. After today's episode, I think that might change. Mm-hmm. And with that, before we get started with today's episode, you know what we need, Casey, and that is a review of the day. Go ahead, build us up. We had a lot of podcasts in the bank, and so. Then we have some, and then we take a break for a little, and then we come back. So we're back after a while today. Vibe check. All right. So this one comes in from Pretty Mad 4285 She said, no better ABA podcast. I love to listen to different perspectives that include psychology and behaviors, and this podcast does the best of it all. As I'm going through school to become a BCBA, it's incredibly refreshing to listen to the girls talk with different professionals to gain different insight, especially if you're feeling burnt out in your current position. I've heard it so many times from all of you that sometimes when you get your BCBA and you go into the role that you dreamed of, you get really burnt out really fast. And one of the major goals of our podcast is to bring on people um, that can, you know, inspire you and there's so much you can do with your degree. Once you're a BCBA, you are a behavior analyst, you are a behavior scientist, you can do so much. So it's not just pigeonholed into one thing. You have a plethora of skills. So thank you so much for that review. We love it, we eat it up, we, it makes us do more, reinforces our behavior podcasting. So, so thank everyone, you, thank you, thank shameless you. plug, go leave a five-star review or no review at all, but preferably a five-star review. Yeah, Thanks. you got nothing nice to say, send me a private email. Just kidding. Um, anyways, today we are so excited. This is a long-awaited podcast. We have had to cancel, move it. We met this person months and months and months ago. Um, you know, we did pre-interview. Liat has been so this, pumped this up is about a, this. this. Is a, I got to say, I, I know you usually do the intro, but this is a topic that I am really interested in. And, you know, I was following these individuals on Instagram. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to reach out. Let's see. We're saying the answer is no. So I reach out and then we got to meet one of these people, but now we have both here. And what they're doing is really cool. And today they will tell you what that is. So without further ado, we have Ta and Cole here. Welcome, guys. Hey. Hey. We're so excited to be here. Super stoked. I just want to state, so for our listeners right now, I like to paint the picture sometimes because they don't get to see it. So husband and wife, both rock star beauties sitting together with these headphones on like airline pilots. They've definitely got their shit together more than we do. Um, a beautiful bird soaring behind Ta's head. Their background is so calming. A picture of a bird, not like a real bird. And no, like a yeah, picture. Um, so we I just want everyone. Hire, we actually hire pigeons and like, dive into circles as we the podcast. Like, wow. <laughs> so yes, Ta and Cole, thank you for coming on. 
Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You know, it's it's one of those things that we we get caught in the same thing of like, am, I'm posting on Instagram. Does anybody even see this? Why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. So when someone reaches out for us, it's like, yes, this is our favorite conversation to have. And that conversation is around psychedelics for healing. And it's something that we're getting legalized in the US. It already is in Oregon, decriminalized in other cities. And the research and documentaries and all of that rolling out is just getting started. Let's do it before Big Pharma does, right? That's right. I did take that right from your website, just so you know. <laughs> most most clever lines Casey says are stolen from somewhere else and typically me, but that's okay. Okay, let's start first with just Cole and then Todd, but just tell us like a little bit about yourself and your story of what, you know, got you into this and who you are so they can get a better understanding. Sure. I mean, we're going to give you the extra Cliff's Notes mm-hmm. version. And so I, my, I, my name is Cole Witty now, uh, but I grew up in Utah, I grew up Mormon, um, conservative state and started having some adverse childhood experiences that gave made me a textbook case of at-risk youth, dropped out of school, um, and by 17, actually ended up in a coma from a bad batch of GHB, which is known as the date rape drug. Now, I was using it back then uh, to come down off of cocaine and ecstasy because it helps you get in your REM sleep faster. That particular formulation was a bad batch, which put me in a coma. It also put like nine other people in the hospital or in severe, um, you know, having a severe reaction that night as well, but I got the worst of it. And so when I first woke up, I was listed under a Jane Doe. I'd been dropped off at the hospital with no ID or anything because it was, I wasn't breathing anymore. There was no time for gathering my things, you know? Um, and so when I woke up in the hospital, um, I was also tied down and on life support. And so the traumatic experience of that in itself um, is part of what made me realize, okay, the path that I'm on, it, it, this isn't going to work. And so three months after uh, that experience, that was December 2nd, 2000, uh, there was an opportunity to do Miss Utah Teen USA, which is the Miss USA pageant for teens. And I said, well, I've got to find something else. I can't hang out with these friends, this environment. I was living uh, out in an apartment. I moved back home and decided to compete at Miss Teen USA or Miss Teen Utah. The platform was substance abuse education. I thought, well, <laughs> I feel like if anyone's going to speak to the dangers of club drugs, I felt the most equipped. Um, I was honest about my story and I won. That started me on being a professional speaker. Montel Williams show, national talk shows, international stages. Throwback. Um, sponsored Montel. by Jet Flu. So, so like, I was obsessed with that show. I loved Montel. Me too. He was my favorite. I would have, I would have even done more, you know, you are not the <laughs> father, even though nothing happened. So it was during that period, then I started to work for Partnership for a Drug-Free America, the D.A.R.E. program. And I was getting up to 200 emails per day by the age of 20. I didn't have any education. I wasn't a therapist. I was, there's nothing clinical. Um, and what I was seeing was devastating. And I was caught up in the once an addict, always an addict world because that was the only alternative. You are either in substance or you are out of substance completely and you have to avoid it. But I kept seeing how disempowering that was. And I saw that no matter how many schools I spoke at, no no matter how many interviews I did, 
It's like I was trying to make up for everything that I wasn't, everything I'd ever done wrong. And the shame and guilt complexes within myself, it just didn't feel good to speak. It's like I wanted it to. I I knew it was helping lives in some ways, uh, but also my story got manipulated all the time, different narratives. Uh, Someone had People would tell me to leave out this part or they'd cut it out of interviews and they would be key points that made it my story. And so at like 22 years old, I decided to stop speaking. Um, I needed to do some personal healing. I had a lot of things unresolved, a lot of violent crimes against me, a lot of just things that needed time and attention. And then at 26, so that was 22, fast forward to 26 now. Now, remember at this point, I stopped using substances at 17. Well, technically, well, I was still 17, um, but my my final experience um, was New Year's of 2020 going into, or t- 2000 going into 2001. And so fast forward now to when I'm 26, so 17 to 26 is when my physical body wouldn't let me outrun my trauma anymore. Um, emotionally, I had stepped away, but... At this point, my body, um, I was at Disneyland with my ex and my in-laws, and my knees were so swollen from fibromyalgia, endometriosis, I'd had an ovarian torsion, scoliosis that was 40 degrees, that was muscular, migraines. I was sick. I was in pain. I was 50 pounds heavy, um, and my body was telling me, you will not take another step. Um, And... That's what led me into the field of psychedelics. Uh, People are led by inspiration or desperation, and which we could argue that desperation is inspiration. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the beginning. It was just the right friend at just the right time and just enough prayers and just enough pleading to God, please, I'll do anything. Just show me what to do because if my body is like this at 26, I'm not signing up for 40 and I'm just getting ready to turn 40 now in feeling better in my body than the majority of my life I have Um, standing with one of the most exquisite men of 51 years of experience on this planet. I was going to ask because I read his thing. He said 25 years of nursing and I was going to. It's actually 30. 30 years as a nurse, 25 I was going to say though, you don't even look old enough to be that. Grandchildren of two. What? <laughs> Wait, oh, no, we can play this game all day. Montel. Yeah, you leveled up. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Okay, this this is wow, amazing. Okay, so Liat loves someone that has like a story. Like oh, that I is got, a story. Oh, I got more than I could possibly. Same here. That's why she yeah. loves me so much. It's like consistently. <laughs> she's like, "What the fuck? You were cleaning crack spoons at four? I'm like, "Yeah, I didn't know why the black wouldn't come off." <laughs> and like I learned later in life that it was crack. I'm like, oh, wonderful, amazing. Thank you, mom. Thank life you. skills. Yeah, life skills. <laughs> anyway, so now, Todd, tell us about you. Oh, there's so many things. And then tell us how you met because n- now yes. we need to know. You said no, you- I'll tell you how we met first. Okay, yeah, I invested in this story. <laughs> so we're both musicians. I toured around as an MC uh, all, all across the United States and overseas. Uh, I did hip hop music for a long, long time. Uh, and uh, I was doing a show at Caesar's Palace in Vegas, and she was performing at that show in Caesar's Palace. Met in Vegas. Vegas. Met Wait, in so Vegas. Wait, so you're a singer, Cole? No. I am. Sing okay, you'll be singing before we end this podcast, because I love <laughs> <laughs> Cole, Cole will not back away from singing. So. I love that. So, yeah. So 
my background, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Um, I am the middle of three children. And I spent a lot of my life lying about a lot of things, uh, a lot about everything. I was born 23 months after my brother. And there was, we were very, very close in age. And I had asked my mother one time, you know, why we were so close in age. And she told me because I was a surprise baby that she didn't plan for me. And so I took that as I was a mistake. And so I felt like I had to do everything to prove myself to be in my mother's grace. And so I made sure that she never found out anything that I perceived would be outside of her love space. And so I learned to lie at a very early age and I lied about everything. And so the body that I built was built off of lies. It was built off of deceit. And I made sure that there was never a paper trail that ever got back to my mother so that she would find out that I was doing something that she didn't approve of. And so I watched my mother like a hawk and my mother operates from a, very, a lot of spaces of guilt. And so I felt bad for everything that I did. And so I made sure that I lied about it. And so that's where the start of, of my life uh, the start of all of this came from. And, you know, fast forward, I, I did a lot of really deviant <laughs> things to, to do my best to get my mother's attention. And then I was still afraid that she would find out on top of it. So I had a lot of conundrum in my life. And I went to bed until I was around 14. Wow. And, you know, my brother would tell people at school and everybody in the neighborhood knew. And I was I had so much shame around that. And uh, when I got to 14, I started, I was getting ready to go to high school. And I was like, I, I can't go to high school and have my brother telling everybody that I went to bed. And so I just stopped going to sleep. And so I had insomnia for 30 years as a result of that. And I didn't sleep more than four hours a night for about 30 years. And it was one of the most painstaking things that I could ever express to, to another human being. I couldn't get out of it. Now I was at, at, in this space where I had built this body that was programmed into not going to sleep and to housing lies. And my body became very, very adept at it. And the only place that I felt safe eventually was at work. And so I, 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 I went through high school messing up my grades on purpose. I was actually really, really bored with school. I was bored with people. I was bored with a lot of stuff. And I, I think I was very, very intelligent. And I wanted my mother to find out, but I didn't want her to find out. And so I messed up in school hoping she would find out. But she never did because I forged all of the report cards. I did everything that I could so that she would never find out that I was flunking my way through high school. And so I couldn't get into any, into any solid colleges. I got into a community college that actually had the best nursing program in New York state that had the highest, uh, the highest passing rate for the boards. And so I jumped in on the nursing program because I was like, all right, maybe I'll become a psychiatrist. Cause everybody was like, you really talk really well. And you helped me move through all these problems. I was like, all right, I'll be a psychiatrist, but I'll pay for it through nursing and I'll go to nursing school first. And so I went to nursing school. I graduated from nursing school in 1992 at the age of 20. And I started working at Kings County Hospital, which is the largest municipal hospital in New York City, in, in Brooklyn, anyway, yeah. not New York City, in Brooklyn. And I learned a lot about trauma and drama. And throughout my career, I, I, and, and I, when I got into, I grew up in the crack of the 80s. And when I graduated from nursing school, it was when AIDS and HIV was rampant all over the country, particularly in New York and San Francisco. And so I worked in this space and I learned a lot about trauma navigation and the navigation of the human anatomy and physiology and medications and all of this stuff. And 
I moved from working on the floors in Kings County to the ERs in Queens. And I started to work at all these different hospitals because I was interested in the different socioeconomic backgrounds and how diseases affected all these different people in different places. And the neighborhood I lived in, there was 60 languages spoken. I lived in the most culturally diverse neighborhood in the world. In Flatbush. In, in Flatbush, Brooklyn, yeah. in, in, uh, in Brooklyn. And so I, I had this tremendous intrigue for people. I love people. I always wanted to know more and more about people. And so my career was built. I worked at about 13 hospitals, about 13, 13 hospitals, <laughs> about 13. <laughs> right. I worked at 13 hospitals in New York City and I got to know a lot of a lot of stuff about people. And one of the things that I learned that most people had in common is that they were lonely and that most of their disease situations came from being lonely and isolated. That was the root uh, that was rooted in shame and the idea that something was wrong with them, bad, broken, not enough or too much about them. And this was driving all of their disease complexes. And so I started, you know, I was in this place where I, I felt like nobody got it. <laughs> nobody could, nobody could synchronize with me. I felt like the world was this pit of, of people who just were immature and not taking care of themselves. And I was doing the same thing and I just didn't see an out. And, you know, I was in these long-term relationships with women that, that would really be mean to me and be abusive. And I just got into this cycle. And the only place that I had an out was in, in when I went to work at the hospital or when I was on stage doing my hip hop music. And so I toured around Europe. My, my, my largest face fan base is in Czech Republic <laughs> of That's all so places. Cool. They, you know, I wrote a book on insomnia and they translated it into, into Czech. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah, crazy stuff. That's and amazing. you guys would yeah, be like, you. I'm still like trying to wrap my head around the fact that like, <laughs> you like did like, he literally looks twenty three, like twenty four, twenty six, maybe. Well, I'm like, I'm like trying to figure out what's going on here. I'm like, well, do this I, is, do he's I Benjamin need too Button. much rooms? Is, do I need too much like that? Maybe. Like, no, I do. No this, amount this of Botox is, 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 is helping me. I mean, this, this, keep going. This, You're doing great. <laughs> Thank you. This is actually a revamp. Um, my body was actually falling apart, and in I, I got into I got into a space where I was in such deep loathing, and I start I started to see what the healthcare industry was doing, creating repeat customers, and I started to become disenfranchised. And the only place that I felt like I could be honest was in the hospital. And then I felt like I wasn't being honest. I was sending people the procedures I know they didn't need. I was giving them medications I knew was fucking them up. Yeah. And it was it was tearing me apart inside. And so I had all this shame and guilt. And I was going to work and I felt I felt like I couldn't escape it. There was it was everywhere. It was on the news. So, you know, social media started to get built, started to build up all of this stuff, and it was just negativity everywhere. And I started to feel really, really lost. And um, you know, there was there were periods in my life where I got suicidal, like all of these crazy things were happening in the background and I just couldn't find a way out. And then I got to, the, to like the bottom of my barrel and I was in a relationship for eight years and it started to fall apart. And um, I started to see this amazing being and she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see where you are. I see what's going on with you. And um, I think you should come with me to a ceremony. And I was like, well, what's that? Right. <laughs> now, mind you, I never tried weed until I was 36 because, uh, and, and the first time I tried weed, I was 36 and it never really resonated for me. Um, when I was a kid, crack was 
big in New York. And so I didn't want to touch any substance. I was afraid of becoming that. And I would, I would sneak out my house at night and in one of my efforts to get caught and get in trouble and find some love for my parents, I would go out and hang out in crack houses and talk to the crackheads. And I would hear their stories of angst and their stories of, of these deep, passionate stories of their loves that they lost and the families that had been taken from them and all of these things. And I learned so much about substance and I didn't want to do it. And so when Cole was like, yeah, you should come with me, come with me to this ceremony. And I was like, well, what's that? She was like, well, you sit in a circle with these people and you go, you take these plants and you go into a psychedelic realm and you find yourself. And I was like, oh, you want, you want me to do some drugs? <laughs> you want me to some crack? Hip, <laughs> with some hippie white people. I'm not doing that. Right? I, was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm not doing that. And so, <laughs> so, so. Uh, Can't we just Netflix <laughs> and chill? Like, right? like it wasn't on, even Netflix thing. then, right? Yeah, so, so. So it was red box and <laughs> red so, box throwback. So, so things started to get really harrowing and I ended up cracking a vertebra in my spine and, uh, and herniating L5S1 and I couldn't walk for three months. Oh and this happened at the time when this relationship, and like we were doing fitness challenges and we had people losing all this weight, but in, but structurally my body was still holding on to things and my posture was jacked up. And I was lifting a heavy patient at the hospital and I snapped my back and I couldn't walk for three months. So I lost all my personal training clients. I lost all my coaching clients. I lost, I couldn't work as a nurse. I couldn't tour with my music and my money went out the window and I was sitting on my couch leaning back and it's one position that I could sit in that I couldn't move and I was drinking Jose Cuervo and posting it on Facebook. So you have to understand, all right, Tom Witte is not a drinker, has never been a drinker, okay? He missed all those very important college years where you learn what you can and can't mix at what speeds and quantities. And so when when we were we were just friends at this point and I start seeing this is this would have been like 2012, something like that. And I'm watching him posting on Facebook and it was watching a little kid run with scissors. You're like, you can't do that. What are you doing? You can't, you don't know what you are doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I didn't have any money. I was like, I called him. I said, look, cause this is in Brooklyn and anyone that knows the transportation in Brooklyn, I was in bed He's in Flatbush. There's no easy way to get to the other. It takes like 45 minutes depending on which parts. And I was like, I only have $50 if I have to get a car service to get there faster to stop this train wreck that's happening, I will, but I'd rather not spend my last 50 bucks. Just promise me you'll wait if I take the train and not take any more shots till I get there because it's seeing someone hitting that rock bottom. I recognized I've been there, mm -hmm. right? In, in addiction, in alcoholism, in um, food, in I'd been in those places. And it was literally like, dealing with a child with substances because that just was never his field. That's just not, that that wasn't something that he did. And it goes back to that desperation for inspiration. You know, I looked at him again and I said, look, I, I know that you said you don't want to experience one of these psychedelic ceremonies or journeys, but I don't know of anything else that would help. And at this point you've, cause he had started personal training to try to get out of the hospital. He didn't mm -hmm. want to be nursing anymore. He's like, I want to help people stay out of the hospital. But the problem was then when he broke his back, he lost all those clients. Right? So now we're in this hopeless despair. I'm never going to get out now. I can't work. And he was per diem at this point. Mm -hmm. So I just said, look at this point, what do you have to lose? Like you don't have anything to lose. Todd, were you scared? I was petrified. Yeah. I was petrified. Thank you for telling my story. 
Inspiration, inspiration. I love you. So, uh, and uh, yeah, I was I was petrified. I was absolutely scared. And you know, being being an MC, you know, being in the hip hop underground, you know, you're not supposed to be scared of nothing. Mm. And so I was, uh, I was scared to show that on Facebook. And so I, I thought that the next best thing would be this show that I'm drinking and I got it and all of this stuff. I'm so cool. Just, no, I wasn't cool. I was just, <laughs> I got it. I got me. I got this. I got, everything was, I got this. And I didn't call okay, anybody. Casey. I didn't call. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't call any friends and I so i was like, i was literally you know in the the re- relationship that i was in the person when i snapped my back um this the person that i was in a relationship with she that was when she made her exit that on that day <laughs> she was like hey by the way <laughs> you got nothing no, left for me. Breaking. I, i've got this other thing that i'm getting into and uh Bye. <laughs> now you're literally on the couch by yourself with no <laughs> yeah. job drinking Jose. Yeah. Oh, drinking the only nasty thing you had in the house. That was just, yeah, it was horrifying. And oh. so I was afraid. I was afraid. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do. And um, I didn't want to kill myself at this point, but I felt like dying. And so I was kind of killing myself. And I didn't, I had no idea of what way to go. And so I have all this information, all the studying I had done, this knowledge of anatomy and physiology, this not knowledge of emotional navigation for other people. I just couldn't put it together for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I had this idea and this view, this vantage point of humanity that was just, I, I had no hope for it. And so she said to me, <clears throat> you know, there's this ceremony coming up. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you want me to do the drugs, right? The drugs. <laughs> and uh, I was like, all right, I'll do it for you. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of other circumstances that we could get into, but I ended up going to this, this psychedelic experience and taking the smallest amount of, uh, what, what's, what's called SAS, which is MDA, which is kind of like, I was going to ask, what is MDA? Yeah. MDMA, so, so, right? No, MD, MD, MDMA is methylene, two different. Is methylene and the same. Yeah. Methylene dioxymethamphetamine is MDMA. Uh, MDA is methylene dioxyamphetamine. And so there's a methyl component to MDMA that meth, that MDA doesn't have. And so MDMA actually metabolizes into MDMA. It's a very similar experience. It's not the same. MDMA is an outward kind of loving experience. MDA is an inward, more an inward kind of loving experience. And so it, it's, it can be, the differences can be subtle or profound depending on the person. And so it, it, it metabolizes a little differently. And both can be chemically recreated um, and uh, MDA is derived from, from sassafras. And that's why they call it sass. So, sassafras, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's like an herb, right? It's what derived from the same like sarsaparilla tree, yeah. like what they make have extracted root beer. Similar, not the same, but for the most simplest, yeah, explanations. It's, yeah, it's sassafras. Yeah, take 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 a look and just it's the world of sassafras is extremely uh, complex and interesting. It's an intrigue space. Anyway, um, I took the smallest dose possible. They gave that to me at this psychedelic experience and the the i went into this nightmarish horrifying fear space <laughs> and they were like why you're in a heart opener how can you be in this space in this in an pathogen and you know and i was in that journey i learned that i was a control freak 
And I learned that I was trying to control everything around me and everybody else's vantage point there, how they saw me, what they thought about me, what they thought about everything. I was doing my best to influence that so that it wouldn't, so that they would have a particular impression of me that would never, ever, ever get back to my mother. And so I learned in this, in this, in this psychedelic experience, like, and I mean, I was, I was afraid and I was holding Cole and I was, I had my head buried in her, in her neck and I was holding her ribs and she was like, Ty, why don't you just let go? And at, at, at that point, I actually took a deep breath and I let go. I let go of her and I let go of just, I just felt into the words, let go. And I let go of everything. And then for the first time in my life, I was able to unlatch from having to control everything. And the, the whole experience shifted and changed, and it changed the, my vantage point on all the people in the room. I was looking at the people in the room, and I was like, well, if this person thinks this and this person, and it all stopped. All of the noise, all of the chatter, everything stopped. And I was able to see people differently. I was able to see all the information that was dwelling in me differently. I was able to see cold differently. Everything was different, and it was frightening. It was frightening because I had never seen existence in this fashion before. I had never known that there was a possibility to see differently than I had seen before. And so after this experience, I was like, yeah, I'm never doing this again, Cole. And she was like, all right. And so like it, over the next two weeks, I started having all this information come in around everything else around me. I started to see colors differently. I started to see people differently. All the information that I had learned in school, I saw differently. Everything was different. And so she took me back and we sat with a friend uh, who's also a facilitator and he kind of guided me through what I could do to, to start to integrate the experience into my day-to-day -day life and it changed everything. And after that, I was like, I want to go back. And so we went back and we had more experiences and people, started to, and people started to come and sit with us in these experiences. And Cole and I would volley as people would come and they would talk to us. We would ask them questions that would bring their stuff to the surface and we would help them navigate and integrate it right in the psychedelic experience. And so this became a thing with us. We had this volley back and forth. And I mean, like working with Cole is, is the greatest joy of my life. I, there's no nobody more brilliant than this woman. And so we started to have all these openings and these experiences and people started bringing us out to journeys to, to support people in these spaces. And, and that's what opened us up and started us in this. And I mean, I can get more into that, but this is where all of my, the change in my perspective happens. And like, I still have all the information that I had building up to, to before that point, but now I was able to see it differently. I was able to articulate it differently. I was able to let go of the, the definitions and the meanings for what I had for stuff and put a new twist on it. And so it didn't, it didn't make it go away. It just changed how I was able to see it. And this is a, a huge part of, you know, the, 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 the deactivation of the default mode network and the default mode is where we put our habits, right? And that's, that's, we have a habit of seeing things in a particular way. And now there are certain songs, when I came out of that experience, there are certain songs that I couldn't stand that now I understood, <laughs> right? <laughs> now I, I sort of understood this artist from a different perspective. Yeah. I understood it was things that my father told me in a different way. Like all these things started to click and make sense as I started to expand and be able to see things and understand things from a perspective that was outside of the myopic, very, very masculinized, hyper-focused mm -hmm. way that I saw. I was able to, to kind of step back and have a view like this bird, the condor, right? And so that's, yeah, that's a little bit about where okay, so how that's, I got okay, it. Okay, condor. Now I <laughs> get So now it. that we're through the intro. <laughs> I literally know, I now understand why the name of it is. Okay. Yes. So, you know, 
With everything Todd just explained, that one of the biggest misconceptions with psychedelics is that people are going to relive traumas or some trauma is going to come up like the boogeyman. It's a very different experience because it's more like returning to the place of an event as your adult self perceiving and seeing the situation where then if you see like five-year-old you experiencing something, you're not experiencing it as the five-year-old. You are seeing the five-year-old experiencing it and you're able to um, like for one visualization in one of my experiences, I was able to pick up eight-year-old me the day before assault on my sexuality started. I was able to pick her up and take her with me And what I didn't know in that whole experience is I got my innocence back because that little part of myself was lost back then. And so through the visualization, the power is your heightened neuroplastic state. It's not that you forget what happened. Your relationship to what happened changes, which allows your nervous system to let go of any of the reactions that are still locked in. And so in returning to some older version of yourself, having deep compassion, giving yourself the love or being able to say the things you needed to hear that no adult could tell you or no one was there for, um, this is where having a skilled guide can be the difference. Because let's say that I'm in my own psychedelic experience and I see five-year-old me and I'm not sure what to do, right? Which was probably what the adults someone around too just didn't know what to do. And so being able to have a support in those experiences and how to prepare is the difference of how you actualize what happened into what we call integration. There's the big realization, which anyone will have, but to actualize the benefits to help your body and your nervous system create new ways of being outside of anxiousness, outside of restlessness or fear or um, hypervigilance, that may take, all right, I'm going to look at myself in the mirror every day and tap my sternum and say, you're safe. I've got you, right? Or whatever is a way to remember the realization that you had, reminding your body you're here now because our mind can travel space and time into the future and into the past, but our body's only ever in the moment of now. So if our thoughts get caught in the past or our thoughts get caught in the future, our body can operate like it's running away from something or running towards something and it's not moving fast enough. I'm literally so, over here like- oh, I'm literally, Casey, uh, I'm like, you need I mean, this? I know that you guys don't know me a lot, but like- You need this yesterday. Like the trauma I've gone through, like I remember. So a lot of what you're saying, like I did an EMDR, yep. um, but not. I clearly was not on any psychedelics, but it was a lot of facing that five year old Casey or the two year old Casey or the Casey in utero, and like, but like, Ta, I relate to you so much with the fact that like I wanted to be perfect. I had to be perfect to get the love. And if I wasn't like, and my mom didn't give a shit because she was on drugs. I just thought I had to be because that's the only way I knew to be. So I control everything to such a strict, rigid, like I will take care of everyone. Like they are my own. Like I have to be in charge. I have to know exactly what's going on. I, and if I don't, I always say, and I, this is my, like, yeah, that's what, when you were saying that, I'm like, be like in my text messages, like my family would be like, okay, so we're going to have like the barbecue at my house tonight. She's in town. She's like, what did it say? Let me see it. Let me, I'm like, okay, we're going to be the barbecue at my parents. She's like, no, let me see. I need to see, make sure 
Okay. And I'm like, I'm like, what can we, and, and no, like, and like to the point where like when I went to her house, I just actually had like a mental breakdown and like had to fly to Texas. Um, just with this was like, this strange past week, past week. This is this past week. And I just got home yesterday and, um, I, I'm such a, like, I would go check on her at like 4 30, 5 30, 6 30 AM just to make sure she was alive. Like she's not the one having a problem. Like she's fine. I'm like so controlling over everything. And I'm so living in the past and the future. I'm never in the presence. Like even just like running from things or whatever, it's like, as long as I control things, I'm fine. Right. Like I have had to do this my whole life. So I don't know anything else. And Mm -hmm. when I did EMDR, what I was, what worked for me and what didn't is that in the moment I was able to process it, but I also felt like I was performing because I'm also a, like, I can act and I can pretend that I'm doing something for someone mm-hmm. because that's what they expect of me. If you tell me that I'm seeing five-year-old Casey, yeah, I see her. Uh-huh. But I'm like, not really. Cause I'm on show, right? Someone's watching me and I'm in my still very rigid body of like, yeah, I f- yep. Tap, tap, tap. Got it. Mm-hmm, yep. Yeah. I'm doing it. Yes. Casey, look at you. Uh-huh, you're crying. Definitely working. But when I left two and a half days of intensive this, I, nothing changed in my life. I just, in the moment I was like, oh, wow. But I was just pretending because I wasn't able to ever let the walls down to let anyone in or anyone penetrate this, you know, body or soul of mine. I will just tell you that it worked. Sure. Yeah. I felt great. Mm-hmm. I yeah. cried. I faced it. I'm over it. And I mean, in reality, no. <clears throat> that, I mean, there's a lot of layers to it, but I mean, that's a fawning response of survival too, right? Where it's just like, yep, I'm going to do what I need to, mm-hmm. what gets approval. I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to be the perfect patient. Correct. And so the thing is with psychedelics is because it's putting you into an altered space, you don't have the same capacity to do that, but that can be scary. And this is where in, in the medicalized models that are rolling out with ketamine, what it does is ask you about that. It. Right. So ketamine's dissociative when it's, well, not when it always is, but and what is when ketamine, it's used off first of all, Sorry. I thought that like puts like horses to sleep. It is. Well, people too. It's, it's a dissociative anesthetic. Yeah. Okay. That's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an anesthetic dissociative that got, it, it, it it's been in, in the hospital system for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people say, oh, it's for horses. Yeah. There's a lot of medications that are used for horses and for people. Yeah. There's a lot of stigma around things. And what it does is it, <clears throat> it, it puts a person into a position where they are completely relaxed like they can't they can't dissociate and, and they dissociate yeah. from their body i already disassociate every day so i don't i don't need that. Right. So, ketamine, and, so ketamine might not be the thing and this is and these are the key things to know because in the research and what's being um it's like this golden you know horse magical thing for therapy for therapy and it's not for everyone. If you're highly dissociative, it's like giving someone more of what their system already does. I don't need more dissociation. All you have to do, like I can have a full-blown conversation and totally not be there because my default settings to, to, to protect myself are going to go along like a Trojan horse, but on the inside, I'm not okay. I'm not safe. I'm not actually functional at times. Mm -hmm. And so which to also say that 15 years into this work, those things don't all go away. Right. I start to understand when they come on what they're trying to do. I understand what they serve and what tools and resources I can bring into my field so that I don't default to things that actually separate me 
when I know what I need is support and safety. And so it's not that all these things necessarily just poof go away. Mm-hmm. You understand them differently when you do the kind of work that we do. And what's happening is people are seeing the research and they're reading the statistics, whether with ketamine or psilocybin therapy or MDMA therapy, and they're going, oh, wow, after one use this the, of psilocybin, this veteran hasn't had to have therapy for six months after just one session. Those are so highly controlled environments and who they're selecting. I think that it's also really um, not functional to be telling people that that to anticipate that um, because that's not always going to be the case when people are going back home to environments where they're stressed, they're not safe, they have someone in their household they don't feel safe with. You're taking someone and putting them in a very malleable state into an unsafe environment where you can deepen the roots of trauma because everything they perceive is like magnified as far as impact and repetition in the brain. And so the thing is with things like ketamine, you'll go to a a ketamine clinic and they'll go, yeah, six to nine sessions and it's going to be great. Nobody explains that in order for it to take six sessions, that means you're going to have to literally completely fall apart. Because you're going to have to dissociate from everything, which means you're going to be lost. You're going to lose your sense of self. You're going to have to lose your sense of what you're connected to. Um, Overwhelm. That's why you have to keep going back is they're undoing all these layers. So you're being sold how quickly it can happen, but not the depth of suffering for a person to go through that many sessions and then have to return and do it again. And for me, There's other elements where we're not listening to our physical body, where if your body's like, I don't want to go back, and you're like, we have to, we're going, it's too much, too fast for the nervous system. And we see health crashes when that happens. And so for us, it's looking at bio-individuality, and like that's why for us, we teach intake processes, um, not just for like ketamine clinics and doctors and coaches, but for yourself. There are certain things your body has been through that if you're in a ketamine session and you've had a crime uh, against you from a male body and you're now alone in a clinic room, dissociated, your mind might not be there, but your body still is quite aware and it can still kick off fear and charge that you are now helpless in this room with a man, right? Even if they're 12 feet away, even if they're on the other side of the glass, the body doesn't feel safe. And so knowing someone's personal history is not required. In fact, most places don't do it. They ask what medications you're on and basic uh, psychiatric things. But for us, that's reckless. For us, that's lazy. And we've worked with thousands of people at this point to where The reason we get the results that we do, which eclipse any research you've ever read. So just to give you an approximate number, out of 13-ish, 100, 1,200, wherever it is now, of people where we actually went through our full intake process, we only had one have an adverse experience. And so if you look at research, they're saying, oh, it's like 80%. Yeah, that's amazing. 20 is insane. I was just reading about it on the Hopkins website, which is like, it's amazing that 
they're talking about this on like John Hopkins Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Uh, yep, that's right. And they-, they were the first cancer research that was really known was the one at Johns Hopkins, which we had a friend participate in for for uh, stage four leukemia. Because the thing is, it's not just cancer happens. It's the body is in a environment of dis-ease that is what perpetuates and creates the environment for the cancer to proliferate. And that, when you really chunk down to it, self-loathing, shame, and guilt. And so whether they're from trauma or whatever's creating these complexes, shame and self-loathing create an environment that's like a pond that's just sludge that just keeps spiraling around. And so the work that they did, it's not that the psilocybin had some incredible chemical property. It's that the emotional work that happens as a result of looking at mortality, of self-forgiveness, of compassion, of self-love helps the body shift into an environment where then, then it starts to react to chemotherapy and treatment. But if we don't believe that we have the right to live, if we don't believe we're worthy of that, we are literally killing ourselves from a molecular level. And in, and at times, until you do that work, the body doesn't respond. And so the effects that you're seeing are not the chemical effect. It is also the therapeutic, mystical aspect of the experience that changed the way that somebody thinks. So when you talk about this, um, because I saw it being used with like smoking cessation, uh, can't like the dealing with like a can't like the anxiety in mm-hmm. like induced from cancer diagnoses, um, PTSD. Is it, I mean, I, I'm assuming there, like you were saying, like you'll like you'll come back and you're not like doing it all one time and assuming everything's going to be better, right? Of course not, right? Think about, you now you can have a huge realization that changes your life forever. But I would say out of my 15 years, I think maybe there's been four that changed my life forever because it got some piece of myself that I had lost that I could not feel whole and complete without. But the majority of the time, it's like going to the gym and thinking if I just work out right. for 12 hours, I'm going to lose all the weight. Of course not. Because there's your system takes time, right? Your the realization takes integration because it, it's not that simple. We are a, a matrix of complex systems. If we just say, oh, I can journey my way out of this, I would have been out of there by now. But I can tell you, in like with things like smoking or anxiety or whatever, it's looking at what's driving the anxiety, right? So for me, um, I smoked for 16 years. Now, here's the thing. I never quit. I still to this day have not quit. Now, I don't know the last time I had a cigarette. Couldn't tell you. But I didn't have to quit when I understood what drove the need. And once the need, I could find that place within myself, what I actually found out was smoking kept me alive. Because at that, for those years, it was the only way I could stop and collect my thoughts and, t- and catch my breath. And breathe. Which sounds, <laughs> right, which sounds counterintuitive to what we're told of what smoking does. And the thing is, if you look ancestrally, if you look in indigenous cultures in the United States, what tobacco or mapacho in South America is, is a master teacher for grounding. And so it is, 
it's been known forever to be a grounding plant. The problem is how it's being used like many things. And so when I understood what drove the smoking and did that healing and figured out what I actually needed, there wasn't a need to smoke. That's interesting. And this is where it changes. We, we, I mean, as behavior analysts, we're often looking for, you know, like when someone has like behaviors that they want to increase or decrease or, you know, like really struggling with, um, we always look for the function in terms of like, oh, I'm not just going to stop them from doing it. You know, like this kid seems to be banging their head on the wall a lot, right? It's like, we're not just like, oh, we just got to get them to stop, tell them to stop. It's like, well, what's the function, right? Like what, what's the root as to why they're doing this? First, we're going to rule out like, is it a health issue? Is it attention maintained? Is it escape maintained? Like when they do this, they no longer have to be a part of a, um, a task that they've been given by a teacher or whatever it is, right? And so yeah. really matching that, like as you're saying, you didn't have to quit once you were able to figure out the function of doing it. And I, I assume, I would imagine, just understanding most behaviors, is that you were able to get that elsewhere, like that time to take a breath or? Well, part of it was letting go of the shame or guilt around smoking because of what I should or shouldn't be as a person or a healthier person or a fitness person or, you know, ultimately I had to get very clear in my priorities in my life. And what became the priority at that point was I was getting so much into dancing. I was in an infomercial with Sean T that Tan I did called size where it needed a greater lung capacity that the the smoking and it was only at that point I was having like two a day right so it wasn't like some pack a day anymore but even that little bit I was looking at the priorities in my life and I stopped judging any of my behaviors I merely said here's what I want now let's look at everything I'm participating in wow. what is contributing to what I want what is taking away from what I want and how far, what's the cost, and am I okay with it? And if I'm okay with it, cool. But at that point, I had a need and desire that was greater than what the cigarettes gave me. And so it was merely just like, oh, okay, well, cigarettes, I love you. Like, I actually have a deeper gratitude for cigarettes now than I've ever had in my life because now I have a gratitude for what they've given me. And on a deeper level, on a shamanic perspective, the teacher that tobacco has been for me. And that's a whole other podcast if we get into that part. <laughs> you know, you know, behavior is is a habit, right? We, we do behaviors over and over again and they become habits. And the body is designed around behavior. And so the chemical composition of the body, the musculature of the body, all of the ways that we function, how fast our heart beats or how, you know, how slow it beats, how, how deep we take breaths, it's all designed around a function. And a function is, is, a, is a type of behavior. And so when a person designs their body to get connection from a cigarette, connection to pleasure, connection to an escape, connection to something, you actually design your body to need the cigarette to fortify the connection. Mm -hmm. And so the behavior supports the connection, which, can, which, supports, which supports the function. Mm -hmm. And the function is providing something. And so everything that I do, everything that we do when we're working with people is we're looking at the, at the core function of what is this driving? What's driving? What is the, the function behind this? And then there are plenty of things that we do over and over again that it just doesn't seem to serve anything because the reason we started it is gone, 
Right. And we keep doing it because we've built a habit out of it. So now the body is conditioned into doing that. You know, it's like you get a person who's a football player, who's a linebacker, who you've got, <laughs> who's who's just roughing it up on the on the field, and then you put them on the tennis court. <laughs> it's, it's not going to function, right? Mm-hmm. But they're, they're built for football. And so you've got to slowly get the person to reintegrate, eat differently, start to move differently, stretch differently, and, and so that they're able to articulate the tennis racket and running back and forth across the court differently. So the body starts to reframe and restructure itself around this new type of behavior. And so football is a behavior. Tennis is a behavior. Smoking is a behavior. Self-deprecating thoughts is a behavior. So yeah, terrible absolutely. self-talk is a behavior. These are all behavioral patterns. And when we see that the body is is a machine that is absolutely fantastic, it will do whatever you tell it to do. And if you tell it to design itself around a behavior, it will design itself very effectively and efficiently around that behavior pattern. And when you remove a person from that behavior situation, they may keep doing the, the original situation that drove the behavior. They may keep keep doing it and not know, I don't know why I keep doing this. I don't know why I keep doing this. You've got to get the person to actually know that they've been doing something that's driving the other place and, in, and find a new thing to, to, to be satiated. And when we look at emotional complexes, the way we work, all emotions are driven by three points. We call them the three points of ease, and that's safety, connection, and fulfillment. And every behavior as human beings is driven by those three those three points of ease. They're driven by safety, they're driven by connection, and they're driven by fulfillment. And I can break down anything that anybody's doing, any kind of habit form, any kind of emotional complex or situation into those three spaces. Are you safe? Are you connected? Are you fulfilled? Are the people around you safe, connected, and fulfilled? Is your property safe, connected, and fulfilled? Are your ideas and your constructs safe, connected, and fulfilled? Is your identity as a person, your identity as a male, as a female, as a trans person, is that safe, connected, and fulfilled? And if not, I can I can pull that apart in those three spaces, and and we can we can adjust your body around anything. So when you say, okay, so let's say someone comes in right, and they are like, I'm ready to do the work. Mm-hmm. Okay, and. What does a typical session look like? Is it, is it within, like, where is it located? What does a session look like in terms of, like, are you, is, I guess I just don't know enough. So, like, are these, let's say, mushrooms. I can't really say the the big word for them. You know, right? <laughs> the psilocybin. Psilocybin. Okay, I got it. Um, like, are they, like, themselves will like like or do you need the guidance to do it it's like oh i'm just gonna take this and i'm gonna be able to like explore these different parts of me or is there usually someone there guiding the experience of like all right like so maybe you said you you said you always get to like know a little bit about the person first so like you Mm -hmm. could you know really i mean look the treatment that's a a yes and yeah how many people do you know already did mushrooms in like their teens and in college and they didn't have any guide. Will someone probably be fine? Probably. It comes down to intention. Everything comes down to intention. What do you want to know? What do you want to do? Who do you want to be? Or what do you want to understand through this exploration? Now, how equipped do you feel for what could come up for you? How equipped do you feel in feeling resourced to where are the mushrooms coming from? Because who grew it matters. 
How it was grown matters. The energy and intention of how they were, and I say raised, because for me, they're little spirits. They are little personalities that if they were only raised for substance use, then they operate that way. When they've been raised as sacred, um, sacramental um, master teachers is what we call them, that translates too. And so, like Ta said, the answer is yes. From an, excess, from a, an accessibility standpoint, there are going to be people who cannot get access to a guide. So would I tell them they shouldn't? I would tell them if it was me, I would start at 0.25 of a gram, and then I would try 0.5 of a gram, and then I would try one gram, and then I would try 1.5 of a gram, and I would move incrementally because if any big emotions come up that I don't know how to navigate, I'm not so far into a psycho or psychedelic um, hallucinogenic space that I couldn't get support if I felt like I went too far. So that's why with what Ta's saying, it's yes. And if you have any ability to have a guide, it's like having someone take you to go scuba diving. If you watched all the videos on scuba diving, you would, <laughs> if you were to watch um every video on scuba diving and the potential risks and all that stuff, and then you get out on a boat and you go scuba dive, you would probably be okay, right? The problem is the times that you're not. The times that something goes wrong that you didn't know about the tank or there was something you didn't know to check because you didn't know. You don't know what you don't know until you find out that you didn't know and you don't want to find that out when you're in a psychedelic experience because okay. that's when it can turn into a bad trip and that can be very traumatizing for people. Now, I do believe every um, bad trip or, or challenging trip experience can be integrated in a way that is super functional and helpful, but it's like anything else. You go to mentors and teachers and guides with experience to avoid pitfalls and create ideal outcomes. So for me, this is similar. You know, we have, we have loads of, of things that we can do. Um, I could go to the store and get broccoli and then just throw it on a pot and turn the, turn the fire on and hope that it would be cooked in some exquisite way. Or I could learn from somebody who really knows how to cook broccoli like in some really magic <laughs> ways right and so it's the same thing with psychedelics you can you can get psychedelics and you can have i know plenty of people that have had some amazing experiences with psychedelics and with no guidance that's not that's not the majority of people the people that i do know that that have been able to integrate these things have worked with guides we don't, you know, people will be like, you know, you need to go back to all the old indigenous practices and do like how they do in the jungle. But this, we're working with people who don't live in the jungle. We're working with people who live in a technological environment and, and people who have all of these different things and processed foods and stuff. And so the people who live in the jungle, they, they understand what they're doing. There's a lot of indigenous practices that we're talking about melding indigenous practices with the technological advancements of, of humanity. And so it's not either or, it's both together. And so what we're, what we're talking to people about is actually being able to have an intake process where you, you do an inventory on yourself and the person you're working with is able to do an inventory on you so that they have an idea of what's going on with you and they can actually guide you through a process that they know how to go through because they've been through it already. You know, the people 
you can get a person who's an ayahuasca who 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 works who lives in the jungle who knows what they're doing and they can guide you through an ayahuasca space they, they know how to do that they have they have the wherewithal and the knowledge to do this and guide you through that space i'm not taking anybody into an ayahuasca space i don't know what i'm doing and so to have somebody to guide me through that that's been through this that's been that's had a lineage of 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 2000 years of working in these practices is tremendously advantageous and so having somebody who who knows how to navigate the mushroom space in the United States of America, who can actually guide you through that space is an important space for safety, for connectivity, and for integration in today's practices. And mushrooms vary greatly. So if you don't know what kind it is, 0.25 of a Brazilian or Amazonian mushroom is not the same as 0.25 of a gram of a penis envy, which yes, that's a type of mushroom that is exponentially stronger. They look like little penises. Anyway, um, and so when they grow. Um, And so... If you don't know what kind you're getting, it makes it really hard to actually know what the experience will be as well. And so it's kind of like if you go to another country, you could get on a plane today, get off, um, we'll say in Vietnam, start wandering the countryside. You've never been, you don't know the language, um, but you could start, you know, after a week, two weeks, you pick up a couple words, you'd understand, oh, those are what bathrooms look like here. Oh, there's where the cafe is right? That's how psychedelics can be. You're going into a new environment that you don't know the language. You don't know where everything is. So could you do it that way? Totally. Depends on how you feel about doing it that way. Having a guide is like being able to, you know, book on Airbnb experiences Mm -hmm. to say, I want to do the bike tour. I want, I like to see museums and cultural sites. And the guide goes, great. We're going to take you on a bike to see cultural sites and art spaces. And so for me, that's what a facilitator does. They help to facilitate the experience, not to do it for you, not to even create what, but they're going to help you create an environment for you to explore the things you want to explore. And so that's the difference. If you're super adventurous and you have traveled on your own and you know that if you get stuck, you've got tools, you feel very confident in your resources, then you'd probably be fine. If you know that you've got a pretty strong control issue and and if you start to feel out of control, that could make you panic or it's what do you do when you're not okay? What are those adaptations? What are those things? Because then you would probably want someone that knows how to work with those to actually help you move through them versus avoid them, push them away or fight them. And so this is where uh, care time and attention comes in. But at the end of the day, what we do is what y'all are talking about with behavior. We call it a state assessment. We're asking someone, what is their current state, which is S-T-A-T-E? What is their situation? What is their thought about their situation? What are their actions as a result of the thought about their situation? So what are they doing or not doing? What are the behaviors? The next T is what we call the triangle, victim, villain, or victor. We call it an oppression trap. It's a whole thing. And then the bottom E is emotion. So when I can kind of get this little map in front of me, and I'm not going to say this to someone I'm working with necessarily, but I've got this little map now of what's going on in their internal world. Between that and the intake process, I can tell you what kind of experience someone's going to have in psychedelics. Not what will transpire, but the likelihood of their somatic physical response to what can happen. And I'll know how to work with it as it comes, as long as we have rapport, as long as they feel safe and they feel like they can trust me. 
Because the second you lose that, there is nothing you can do as a practitioner to help someone through. And that's when we see quote unquote bad trips. Someone doesn't feel safe. They don't feel like they're, they've got the support that they need or they don't trust the person. And then that's when it goes sideways. But here's the things with mushrooms. There's no such thing as an overdose. There's communities uh, like Baba Kalinde EE, who 50 grams of mushrooms is, which for anyone listening, that's like 50 times than what most people would take, 25 times at least. It's not something anyone overdoses from. It's when they're mixing lots of substances that you get problems. But psilocybin mushrooms themselves, no matter what kind, um, have never solely caused a fatality for an overdose. Wow. I was like, you need to sign me up for this ASAP if you want me to keep working with you. (laughs) No, I literally am listening. Okay. I'm just like a little bit of like everything you're saying. First of all, I just want to say thanks for coming on because I I do think like if there's – and also anyone listening, I know we have a lot of people in the behavioral space, psychology, psychiatry listening. Um, And I know in – behavior analysis, we talk a lot about like, no, we don't use mentalistic approaches. We stick straight to behavior, what you see. Um, and we like evidence-based, but if you guys like type in on the internet, you're going to end up on like, uh, I mean like huge research driven. I mean, like I said, like here's Hopkins. I saw Mm -hmm. like, I mean, they've been, they're going through, what is it? Uh, they're going through the, clearing the phases of clinical trials. I mean, this is not just like a, oh, I oh, heard no, this it's cool thing, you know? No, no, no this th- is, this is, this is here. This is here. I mean, the, the, there's companies that if you, the portfolio or the, the, it's already said that the psychedelic space for nutraceuticals is already looking to be what, like a, it's this year, last year was at 4 billion. They're projecting 7 billion this year. For something that's not even legal not yet. Even, it's not even that's, on the I market. Mean, cause here, like it said in 2021. So that was, Oh, I guess that was two years ago now. I was about to say that was last year. COVID the slowed first everything federal down. grant for psychedelic treatment research in 50 years. Hopkins got that too from NIH. Yeah, no, it's, NIH. It's already I mean, rolled this out. is wild. Yeah. And that's in this country. Right. In Oregon, there's already now approved government therapeutic work being done with psychedelics. It is legal there right now. There's just very limited government approved programs for the legal facilitation. Um, but there's amazing people. Uh, Dr. Erica Zelfand, if you want to follow a doctor that's the head of this in a behavioral clinical setting, Dr. Erica Zelfand, Z-E-L-F-A-N-D. She has so many courses on it that are like 300 bucks. You pop in her course and you're going to learn the research-based parts. What we teach is the behavioral parts and the integration parts. So wh- once you know someone has had an experience, what does that mean now, right? What happens when? For us, we teach body mapping. If you're having chronic pain in a shoulder that's recurring suddenly, for us, that's not suddenly. The body is speaking. So we help to translate the, help a person translate the unique language of their body and how that relates to their behaviors and their thoughts, because all of that is data and information. And then not only do their behaviors and thoughts help them understand what they do, but their body's telling them when they're not honoring boundaries, when they're not paying attention, when they're not present, and it speaks loudly. 
right? And so this is how I got out of all of my illnesses and diseases. So I haven't had a laparoscopy since 2009. I haven't been off all medications, hypothyroid and others since 2009. I haven't had any um, interventions or anything since because I started to learn that my body's condition was not happenstance and that the epigenetic or the genetic encoding from my family is trauma-driven. So our genes that are expressing are because of the environment. When I started to change my inner environment, it changed my genes expression and I started to age backwards. And if you look at pictures of me when I was 27, I look younger now at 40. If you see pictures of Todd 37, he looks younger now at 51. That's not, you know, some... That's like a permanent product to look at. I mean... It's stress, it's shame, and it's how you actually, how your body's operating. Like now I can journey, which is what we call working with a psychedelic space. And we have elders down in from Peru to the US to Costa Rica, all over the world. We speak to ourselves. I speak to my mitochondria. I speak to my body when there's a pain or something that isn't resolving that should be because I'm doing all the right things. And it's because there's something that I don't understand unconsciously operating through my physical system. So I talk to my body and say, what do you need me to know or do or be or understand? What are you trying to tell me? And then we have a very methodical, we are actually the only data-driven psychedelic education resource So we give every person we work with a book that has little anatomical bodies where you're tracking every day the sensations, the expressions. And at the end of each week, and this is what makes it so powerful, we have little scoring systems and um, little journaling prompts and all this stuff. It's 10 minutes of journaling in the morning, 10 at night. But we've identified metrics that reflect whether someone is moving towards ease and away from disease. Because for us, health is a continuum from ease to disease. So we're just looking, where are you moving in the continuum, right? And then from those metrics, at the end of each week, they fill out a summary. When we get on a call, the only thing we're discussing is your summary. Not how you felt this week, not how did it go. We are looking at the data because the data reflects the truth of their whole week, not how they feel today. Because I'm sure y'all have had sessions where Uh the mood someone's in when they come into the session is the truth of how it is, period. And if they are having a rough day today, then the whole week was rough. Now, because of this method, we can coach up to 50 people in one 90-minute call. So not only can we reach far more people effectively, now we use this through the lens of psychedelics, but it's for any transformational or somatic work where you're looking to bring attention to the mind and the body, and how they're interconnected. And so when we get on the call, even with 50 people, we don't even talk to every person. We divide them into groups because we teach them how to do it themselves. It takes radical self-responsibility. And if they don't do the book, we say, no problem, come on the call. You're still going to learn from hearing from other people. Just know that you didn't do the work. You don't have anything to, to share. And then there's no, we can't argue whether or not they are showing up, right? Because they just go, I didn't do the book. We're like, no problem. Do the book and then we'll 
pop on and have a conversation. So now for practitioners, we don't have the same risk of burnout because we're seeing the burnout models that are already existing in the therapeutic space are rolled out in the psychedelic space. And it's not enough money and insurance doesn't cover enough of it because psychedelics are still federally illegal. So, you know, it's not, it's not an easy thing to cover. And so we're still seeing the hour to hour exchange. It's not enough money. Ketamine clinics are paying nurses $25 an hour for, to help with supportive coaching care. That's not sustainable. Ours is the answer to say that this is the new way of coaching. This is the new way of true integrated care. And you guys have come up with this model? Correct. This this Well, this started because I had to come up with a way to figure out all my medical conditions. When I first changed my diet and lifestyle, I lost 40 pounds, changed a lot. And I tell people that resolved 60% of my symptoms. For some, it's crazy to think that just not drinking a full bottle of wine and Ambien to sleep and coffee to wake up and then an energy drink in the middle of the day and then fast food. I thought that method worked, right? So yes, I changed all that. That, that solved 60% of my symptoms, but the other 40% only came with resolving trauma and self-loathing and what I felt I deserved and being able to find relaxation. Because if you can't relax, you cannot heal. You may rest, you might heal a little, but in order to fully heal, you must relax. And that's what very few, exactly. We've taught more (coughs) entrepreneurs than I could possibly count the scariest thing they've ever experienced, relaxation. So on Shabbat for, um, Liat is Orthodox Jewish. And so from Friday at sundown to Saturday, there, you know, you can't use technology, you can't use electricity. And I was there this past one. I've been there a bunch of them, but she's like, it's Saturday morning and we have no, like with nothing to do. Nothing no, like she's on Shabbat. Of course, I'm up. I'm like my my, my son was at his dad's house. It's, it's like perfect he's time with me all the time. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna sleep. <laughs> so I'm in there at seven like thirty. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? She's like, I'm resting. I'm relaxing. What are you doing? I'm like, I don't know. I think I'm gonna get on the Peloton and then like maybe I'll do this and then maybe I'll go to Target and then like. And I've already like, clicked you on to- you three times tonight. <laughs> I'm like, and then creepy. she's like, hey, she's like, Kate. Here's a Xanax. I need you to sit in bed with me and literally like do nothing. And I'm like, that sounds great. I take a Xanax. What do I do? No, I don't relax. I don't rest. I'm literally pacing around the house. She's like, you filled your water 42 times. I'm like, it's just because my legs don't sit still. And I just like, she's like, we're watching a movie. Relax. Like, I don't know how to relax. I will pace and pace and pace and pace. Even at night, my legs just are going, going, going. Like they don't stop. I can't switch from you one side to the other. You have to have side. like TV shows actively in your ear, like in your airpod. Always. Like no silence is not okay. I'm like, uh, that I'm thinking, right? Totally. Yeah. So it's like, oh my, everything you're saying, I'm just like, I am like the prime candidate. No, no we know. Really like- we wrote the books on it. Yes. <laughs> I've had like lived the had a butthole drain recently, like a lit- legit fistula. I, I things that you never experienced. Like like, illegitimate. Yeah, I'm like, what is going on with my body? Like, someone help me! Like, yeah. but recently through some, I don't know what it, it healed on its own, which is like unheard of with these things. But either, either way, it's just like I know why. I, I know what you I mean. think because more than ever lately, mm-hmm. you have been like expressing your truth and more things like what you want to do in your life like 
in general. And I still do think that you're someone who has a a difficult time letting go of anything. Like, I mean, and understandably yeah. with what you've been through, but I do yeah. think that you're, I've been you saying my truth as much in your defense mode on everything. Oh, I'm wicked defensive, and she no, knows but, like you know, trigger, you've been trigger, less. Trigger. I'm saying, yeah. And I think maybe yeah. that's why you like. I mean, I totally believe in the like the the health body connection. Like, I mean, I think everyone has autoimmune issues now, which I mean, I have, and I know that mine was literally like I found out my dad had cancer the next day. I like woke up with lupus. <laughs> it was literally like, and I was like, okay, there's definitely some correlation there. And mm-hmm. um, so when you talk about this, I'm like, th- this is, of course, it manifests in people's body. Like you're, you're carrying literal weight. Yeah. There's one of the simplest practices to just get curious and you don't even need any sort of guidance on is if you sit down and timeline your life from your birth history. So once your mother, you know, became pregnant with you until current and put every physical ailment, illness, injury that you can think of, just anything you can think of, and then look at what was going on in your emotional life around that time and then compare that to the part of the body that's impacted. Example, when I was eight years old, fell off my bike, got a big scar on my chin. I kept getting nonstop um, sore throats, infections, teeth issues, um, countless, right? Back then was a time when, and we see in childhood development, it's the development of speaking up, of truth, uh, what we call throat chakra development. And so at this, when stuff like that happens, especially at that age, my body, if I, when I look at someone's intake form, I'm looking at their medical history actually, and any, what I just told you, basically a chronological uh, timeline. And if I see someone has all this around this area, I'm going to say, so what was going on around that time, around eight years old? Was there anything going on? Oh, no, you know, just typical things, but no, nothing traumatic or anything like that. I'll be like, okay, well, is there, do you remember at all if you had a hard time expressing your truth or did you feel like you had anyone to talk to? Did you feel like your voice was welcome? And if someone's like, oh, no, no, my parents were getting divorced. They were too caught up. I didn't have anyone to talk to. For me, I'm like, obviously, because that's what your body's expressing. And it's the same with thyroid and it's the same or similar. And so this is based off of our thousands of surveys that we did that we just kept seeing interesting. Everyone, eight out of 10, uh, we work with a lot of entrepreneurs that are in the health space, biohacker space, eight out of 10 either had a father that gave significance and love for high achievement and then didn't acknowledge if the achievement wasn't there or was emotionally absent, that could include physically, or through something like alcoholism, so they were not emotionally there. Eight out of 10 who had autoimmune issues and dysfunctions and a health crash between 38 and 48, because the high-performance driver can't work that way anymore. What got the body to where it is can't keep it going. You know, one of the things that I learned about behavior in in my psychedelic explorations is there's a global or a macro behavior and then there's a micro behavior. And when you look at the out with the outward expression of the human being, we have these behaviors that we do. When we look at the body, right, the amount of things that are having to behave for me to do this 
all of the nerve fibers, all of the cells, the cellular respiration for me to move my finger like this. They're all behaving. And so if I'm getting part of my body or getting my body to behave in a certain way over and over again, and it's not built for that, it's going to eventually break down or mutate. Right? And so when you look at something like, like cancer, when you drive a body to perform in a way that it's not designed to perform, it'll perform that way. But, the, but when the physiology starts to break down, it has to mutate into other things. And then that mutation can be out of a habit, and that habit grows into something that's highly dysfunctional in organ structures. And this is something that I've been talking to physicians about. I've been talking to, to nurses and doctors nurses and, and uh, practitioners and biohackers about is these microcosmic behavioral patterns that happen inside of the organism. If I take a Honda Civic out into a construction site and I, and I, put, and I put it to start pushing bricks like a bulldozer, it might be able to push the bricks for a little while, but it's, it's going to end up getting broken, right? Or the tires are going to wear out and it, something's going to be dysfunctional until it breaks down. And so this is the same thing inside the human organism. When we push the human organism to do things that it's not designed to do specifically over and over again for years and years and years, it will start to mutate and break down. This is a behavioral pattern on a microcosmic level. And when we look at all of the microcosmic behavior that we have, our gene expression is one of the smallest things that we have that's an expression. It's a behavior. And so when we teach our genes to turn on and turn off at particular spaces, they will get the whole body to cooperate with it. The body has to cooperate. And so the body can cooperate for detriment and the body can cooperate for awesomeness. It's all up to the, to the situation and the function. And so I just wanted to swing that back around because... This is an undercurrent of what we're doing with this with this guide is we're getting people to really start to, to, to drill down and start to see the trends in their behavior and that it might be driving the dis-ease that they've created in their bodies on autopilot. This habit, this behavioral function is something that we can drill down and we can see on very, very, very small levels. I've done it with myself. Cole's done it with herself. I used to wear glasses. People, you know, like people are always asking me, what are you doing? I'm drilling down and I'm seeing these behavior patterns that are attached to emotional sequences that have my body in a dis-ease space. And when I do that, I remedy them. I move them out of the way and I start to change and my body starts to mutate into a new me that is built for the expression of freedom and ease. You know, it's something to know that Ta was told that he would be blind by the time he's 40 with a diagnosis retinitis pigmentosa. And so he spent his all of the years up until that point under the idea um, that at some point I'm not going to be able to see anymore. And so it was always this impending feeling where I felt like from my perception was what was driving him to be doing so much because at some point he's not going to be able to. And so until you look at what is the secondary gain of some of those side thoughts that are driving illness, that are driving um, just general un unhealth, then they don't really just resolve based off supplementation alone. We might be able to buy some more time or gain access to some of the systems, but if we, if we don't actually look at what's driving us down that path, then we're just changing the tires versus changing the path, right? We just got new tires because one was blown out, but we're still on that same dirt path versus getting on the right road for the vehicle. So for us, the body's the vehicle of experience. And it's not just a meat suit. It is a whole other intelligence of bugs and biome and other components that, for me, 
that's what my self-love actually ended up being was how do I truly connect with all of the matter that is this system to find out what it needs from me. And that also took some reconciliation of, I thought I had bad knees and then I recognized how bad I'd been to my knees, how bad I'd been to some of my other systems that I started to say, if that was a relationship that I treated that way, that I spoke to that way, how well would that relationship be? And so there was some um, confrontation things that I had been avoiding with myself. And that's why having a guide and someone that's been through it. And that's why we started to teach it. We don't facilitate in the States. We do one trip a year um, out of the country so that we can do this legally. Uh, But this is where we realized that if everyone had the tools that we've spent all this time um, really working out into very consumable lessons to understand human behavior because honestly no you don't need to doesn't have anything to do with psychedelics it has to do with our systems how to work with them how to create wellness and then how to support sovereignty and self-responsibility because that's the only way we can decentralize care in a way that everyone can get access to support you guys are amazing. I just could talk thank to you probably you. forever, but thank you so much for your calmness, your energy, your knowledge. Your ability to, I, I have think- to tell you, and both of you guys are amazing, but Cole, the way that you, um, you really have a gift in terms of like sharing and like, or disseminating what it is that you do and what the experience is. Um, thank you. Because I feel like I've heard some people talk before and it becomes like this whole like, yeah, no, like it's this. And it's like, and I'm like, listen, I'm not like some like mystical whatever. Like I, I believe in the spiritual stuff, but the way you do it is is really amazing. So thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. And for anyone listening. More mushrooms. More mushrooms. <laughs> yes. Okay. But, but this is the thing, like as you get to wrap up, the idea that it's only for medicine and for patient care is also not accurate. Mm-hmm. So I say that, but I'm actually completely serious and that my intentions when I do ceremony now is what do I need to know, do, be, or understand to translate these very esoteric spiritual aspects into 3D to Uh bridge mysticism and science. That is what I'm here to do. So when I say like more assumes, I'm actually totally serious at the same time. This is the difference in optimization. Once you get out of survival then you become a survivor, then you become a thriver, then you become a contributor. And when you become the contributor, you have to start looking at what we call the condor approach, the bird's eye view, the high level perspective. And that is when it really gets fun is when you get to work with these substances as master teachers versus as doctor patient relationship. But when they actually, you get to know these personalities to where, yeah, I get to do this work and, and translate it. So awesome. Wow. I'm just like, I have so much like things and questions and everything. I'm just like, ah, so thank you guys for coming on again. Tell me, tell me where people can find you guys and, and what they could find when they do find you guys and what you offer. Mm -hmm. We have a podcast, The Psychedelic Coach. We talk about coaching and we talk about building your own business. Um, The other thing that differentiates, we teach the behavior aspects, um, but we're actually a done with you certification. 
So we call it a psychedelic informed coach certification. We take your unique gifts, certifications, qualifications, plug it into our skeletal system so that you know how to utilize it from a marketing perspective of being a psychedelic informed coach because there's that is one of the most needed. Like if you Google around psychedelics and how many practitioners we need, they need 100,000 by 2025 from what they're projecting. At least. At least. At least. And so for us, a psychedelic informed coach is the answer to that problem. Um, and it can be a part of a practice, but it's really another layer of understanding. So if you go to condorcoach.com, that has the live events, the trainings. Um, if you, we have lots of free stuff. We have free programs, condor.coach, if you want to learn more just about basics of integration. Um, and then we have a free guide. This book that I've been talking about, anyone can get for free if you go to free guide. Dot VIP. You can download it for free, take it to Kinko's, print it. I don't care. This changed my life. And for us, this is our gift to the world that if no, if someone had no other tool than this book and a gram of mushrooms to start, <laughs> that this might help them get to where they need to go. And I'm not condoning the illegal or illicit use of any substances under any jurisdiction outside of a legal context. And <laughs> that's it. Awesome. Every, everyone go to, what, where'd we say? Oregon. Oregon. Okay. Everyone go. I actually just booked my ticket, so it's fine. <laughs> well, actually, in uh, Oregon, Oakland, California, Denver, Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan. I love Denver. Let's do that. There's there's a lot. DC, um, it's popping up in a lot of places. That's why when we say it's already here. So if you're a coach of any kind or working with people in a therapeutic capacity, this will cross your field. And those who are brave enough to step into it now and say, I don't know, but I'm ready to learn five years from now, will be the experts of this entire field as far as integration and behavior. I love it. Wow. Guys, go check this out. We'll also have all this information in the show notes. So because personally, I'm someone who likes to like click something to end up there and we're going to do that for you. So, And we'll make sure we give you a coupon code for $250 off a of training for all of your listeners. Too. I love it. Thank you. So you can use coupon code bitches to save $250 off any certification training in the United States. Love it. Wow. I, I, I'm excited for this. I, I am making sure Casey is in your, like, uh, you will be getting, like, I need to, I'm like, <laughs> I'm sending you. I, I don't know what's, what's happening here. But anyways, that's it, guys. Thanks for tuning in. You know where to find us. You can find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast, on our website, BehaviorBitches.com. Go ahead Send us a message if you have someone that you think would be amazing for us to have on, or if you are that amazing person, go ahead over to the Apple. You could listen to us anywhere, but we love reviews on the Apple Podcasts app because it's the only place you could leave the reviews, and we live for those. And with that, as always, love ya. Mean it. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started 
He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Today. 